Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen. It's episode 32 of Swimming Upstream. We are back continuing our trip around the Marlins minor league system. And today it's all about the Pensacola Blue Wahoos, probably the most exciting team on the forefront when the season began with their absolutely stacked roster. During the year, it just continued to get stacked upon. And the team did not disappoint. Some of the top prospects in the organization showed up and showed out. So to recap all of it, uh, we have with us our first ever repeat guest on Swimming Upstream. He was here at the start of the year, and he's here now at the end of it. Um, the awesome play-by-play voice and media coordinator for the Pensacola Blue Wahoos, Chris Garagiola. Chris, man, thanks so much for coming on again for a second time this season. You did a ton for us this season and setting up a couple of our previous episodes, articles as well, which we can't thank you enough for. So welcome back. And uh, how's the offseason so far? Hey, man, thanks for inviting me back. Uh, I know you've been super busy. You got a lot going on. So glad to talk some Blue Wahoos baseball. Uh, I'm enjoying the offseason because when you haven't worked for a year and then you get thrown right back into it, it can feel like twice as much. So relaxing, getting ready for a trip, haven't traveled much in the last couple of years. And then uh, when I get back from that at the end of November, I'm ready to steer right back into baseball because who knows what baseball is going to look like when we get to December 1st. Yeah, for sure. That's definitely what's on the table at the at the major league front. Well, we're talking about the minor league front. There should still be minor league baseball no matter what. So we're at least happy about that. So we'll see what happens uh, with the CBA and everything else. But uh, yeah. All right, man. Let's get going. Uh, some team specific for you first on the Wahoos as a whole. Um, the first one, I just want to ask overall, first season, new team, Marlins organization, certainly a lot to digest here, right, which we'll get to. But from the outset, overall thoughts on the talent level, everything that you saw, you know, guys that you started with, guys that you ended with. We know that the Wahoos were the team to watch pretty much after the roster releases this preseason. Everybody was keeping an eye on this team if there was just one um, from this Marlins system. So give us some adjectives to describe the season for you as a whole and how this crop of prospects may be compared to other systems that you've worked with. Well, it's interesting because I think you have to evaluate this group of prospects and, and every, you know, farm system in 2021 a little bit differently than you would normal years because so many of these players were coming off a canceled season and that was a question that we had it seemed like almost every day especially in the first half of the season not to mention that there were some slight rule changes you know, shifting rules especially the ones in the second half and things like that um so I just want to keep those guys sort of isolated from everybody else. But when you have a new affiliation, you want to take your time and try and understand the history of at least the parent club. What's the last five, 10, 20 years been like that sort of thing. And obviously with the Marlins, it's been a tougher situation in terms of success on the field at the major league level. It was exciting to see them make the postseason in the abbreviated 60 game season. Um, and I don't think that was necessarily a fluke year because we saw their performance uh, beating the Chicago Cubs, right? But then ultimately falling short. I think it was against Atlanta. Um, so to see what the Marlins did again at the highest level in 2021 seemed like a step back, but they still had a bunch of really talented prospects in Beloit, in Pensacola. Uh, and obviously we saw some of those Beloit guys come up. So a lot of those players in snapshots performed to what I think their potential was, and that was exciting. And there was a, a real bevy of different types of prospects. We saw true power. We saw pretty much outstanding pitching, which was a real hallmark, I think, of the Marlins farm system and will be a staple of the Marlins, again, at that highest level for, for several years now. But I also think we saw intangibles of players that could reach the big leagues. We saw speed. We saw fielding. So 
at different points, it came together at different times throughout the season. It was lacking. And even though sometimes the wins and losses were not as consistent as we would like, we had a talented team. We had an outstanding group of young men, uh, by far the best bunch I've ever worked with, especially given the, the circumstances coming out of the pandemic. And uh, yeah, really look forward. I mean, I enjoyed getting to know them and looking forward to get getting to know next year's bunch. Yeah, for sure. And you kind of segue to my next one pretty perfectly. Um, let's talk about life after and still during the pandemic. I mean, obviously baseball came back, which is great. Minor league baseball is back, which is great. But um, we know with the redrawing of the lines here with, with MILB and, you know, everything that went on with limiting travel, safety protocols, all that stuff. Um, you guys kind of went through it a little bit, I think, during the season and then prematurely your season ends because of issues with another team. So let us know how your team in Pensacola, you know, navigated these circumstances and how you felt about this new landscape for the Wahoos and for the league during the course of the entire year. Yeah, I was one of the luckier ones because uh, I felt like my ownership group really fought to make sure that I was given the opportunity to travel, even if it meant not traveling with the team because of health and safety protocols. So minus a little hiccup, the first series on the year, because we opened on the road uh, and there was a, a shortage of hotel rooms. But uh, I mean, they basically said, if you're OK driving, you know, you're you're going to have the ability to call these games, to see these players in person, obviously keeping a distance uh, and, and wearing masks and abiding by those health and safety protocols. So having, again, not worked any baseball games for an entire year. I was like, if you need me to drive to Kenosha, right? Like I'll get in the car and get up there. Just, I just want to work. I just want to get back to doing what I enjoy. So I know that wasn't the case with a lot of other minor league broadcasters. I really felt for them. Uh, it's never fun to see your colleagues have to try and piece together, you know, fake crowd noise or rely on an MILB.TV feed. Cause I'm sure you've seen some of the feeds we had in our league, for example, and you're going, God, this is really taking away from my experience. So, and to try and do that for an entire season or half a season, I should say, is really frustrating. So I hope that next year we won't have that issue at all. Obviously with, with an abundance of vaccinations, it shouldn't necessarily be the same type of problem it was, you know, when we started a year ago and man, I mean, everyone just keeps saying the same thing, right? Get back to normal. Let's just get back to normal. And I think normal is we don't have to think about it the way we have the last two years. And I hope that's what 2022 looks like. Yeah. Probably more of a new normal than an old normal. <laughs> yeah, probably that's, that's probably a better way of putting it. But yeah, that's kind of how I've been saying it. Like we can kind of get close to it, but probably not all the way, but Hey, as long as everybody's safe and baseball is being played, that's, that's what we care about. Right. For the most part and players are safe. Fans are safe. Fans can go to the stadium, have a good time. That's, that's what matters. And you could do your job as well. So anyways, I'll go on. Uh, the next thing, this is, it includes the Wahoos, of course, um, but it's minor league baseball as a whole. I want to talk about minor league housing. Um, for a long time, as you know, this was a huge issue around minor league baseball and only compounded this season due to COVID, which we just talked about. Um, after 2020 gets wiped out, you know, in this new landscape, which we just said, host families are gone. Uh, you know, that's not a thing anymore. It can't be. Also, there, not to make it political, but there was a nationwide eviction moratorium. I think that maybe created an issue when it came to of available, affordable housing around or near bar, ballparks. So, you know, I was very vocal on this. I've written a bunch of times on this. I've talked about it a bunch of times in other places. Um, but these guys are expected to stay in peak physical condition and peak mental condition while struggling to keep a roof over their heads. I think it's a lot to ask of anybody, let alone a professional athlete. So we know a lot of the players 
who called it quits due to this exact issue. Um, but of course, Quint, Quint Studer, um, he was a true steward, as he always has been, steps up and literally bought and gave property to minor leaguers free of charge, which was amazing. And then, of course, we get the extremely needed announcement that MLB will be requiring its clubs to pay for lodging during the season. So we know you've been around the business for a long time. So just tell us your thoughts when it came out, how you felt about this and how big this is and how overdue it was. You know, it's funny. I actually know someone uh, who's been working for years, about four or five years ago on trying to get basically better living conditions for minor league players. Uh, and I think he either founded or was someone else founded a group called more than baseball. Um, Jeremy Wolf, he went to Trinity, was a fantastic player, was drafted by the Mets. And so, I mean, big tip of the cap to him, because I know that he and many people that he works with has been fighting for this for a long time. And it's one of those things I think we'll look back on, Alex, and think, why wasn't this a thing in the beginning, right? When we look at sort of the finances and, you know, the net value of so many of these teams, it seems like it's a drop in the bucket, right? Just to, to get some, some housing, uh, you know, for your players. I will say, it, not that you go back and forth, right? But I did see some of the stories that came out over years, right? And, and some of it almost seemed impossible to believe. And for the, for the people that did quit, I would never want a player to quit because of something as preposterous as, you know, you're basically sitting on a floor with six other players. There's rats running around or think, you know, the food you're being served is moldy. It seemed like some of those horror stories were coming out. When I saw stories where, you know, people were considering taking their own lives or they lost their own sense of purpose. To me, that's where I became alarmed a little bit and thought, look, you know, baseball is a dream, but baseball isn't everything. It shouldn't be everything. And I hope that, you know, people who were experiencing that were able to get help first and foremost. Um, so it, it was alarming to see things like that. I think that this is a better system moving forward. I think just putting these things in place with the understanding, because again, it's major league teams that needed to step up and do this. And so making this a requirement hopefully means that a amateur who's becoming a professional will have the best possible chance at reaching the highest level of baseball and that these won't be obstacles that got in the way for players that came before them. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome news, I think, across the board for everybody. Um, the last thing on the team before we get to some players, Chris, um, on a much lighter note, um, I want to talk about promotions. Um, you guys had some damn good ones this season. The mullet Thursdays, the Crabzilla night. Um, you know, that was really highly heralded around the league. Those uniforms came out, you know, and everything that you guys did with that, which was awesome. You eating the sandwich on the broadcast was amazing, by the way. Um, you were even giving COVID vaccinations in the park at one time, which I thought was really cool. So, yeah, tell us about how you guys continue to come up with these new and creative ideas that break new ground in the game, promote the brand and, and positively impact the community. You know, that goes honestly to the rest of our Blue Wahoo staff. Um, we have some really obviously creative minds. Uh, we have a really patient and supportive ownership group as well that wants us to push outside the box that literally sets up meetings with other organizations so we can try and figure out different things to do. The minor leagues, I mean, I think the number one adjective to describe the minor leagues is zany, right? You're, you just, whether it be a name like the sod poodles or the sock puppets, or whether you're trying to come up with a hat that's, you know, got a chicken tender on it, I, you're just trying to find that crevice that no one else has gone into and then come out with something really creative. Uh, some people were, were offended by the Crabzilla jerseys. I was, when I was a kid, for example, 
I remember hearing about a minor league promotion where I think for a day, the fans got to write in the starting lineup. Right. And I was like, this is preposterous. These are, these are players that are trying to be big leaguers. I mean, this is, this is wrong. This is criminal. And my dad was sort of looking at me like, take a chill pill. Like you're eight years old, calm down. And seeing stuff like, I mean, we had people that said that those uniforms were a disgrace, that we were an embarrassment. I was like, first of all, it's fun, right? That I think if one thing baseball needs to do, regardless of the level, is place a larger emphasis on the fun aspect, with the, especially the product on the field, and just watch the ripple effect that it has. But, but second of all, you know, our players, I think leading into it, it was like, ah, oh, we don't want to do this. And then they got over it within five seconds. And Max Meyer turned in one of the best pitching performances we've ever seen. It's one of the best crowds we've ever seen. Guys were loose. Guys were fun. That was the energy that for a while, I mean, a two or three week stretch was sorely lacking and I'd have to go back and check, but I think we went on a nice little run kind of after that moment. So look, I don't know if next season we're going to have equally as hideous looking uniforms. I know that we'll come up with some stuff, hopefully, certainly on a corporate side, certainly on a creative side where we can find that perfect balance between fans coming to the park and seeing something they maybe never seen, but also our players being able to enjoy what is a grueling, you know, summer long season right on the panhandle. Some guys travel a long way from home to try and play in 140 games and, you know, hopefully they can have some fun too. Yeah, I agree. I think it's doing something different and there's a lot of different that's being done in minor league baseball. So to do something that, that no other team has done or come up with a, an ugly uniform and make it look good. Like you guys did, that's, that's, that's something new. And that's something that, that baseball, as you said, as a whole and sports as a whole, I think really could use more of, especially at the minor league level where it's development first and winning second, as you know. So yeah, um, loved it. I love the uniforms. I, I thought they were fun. I thought they were cool and it was a great game. So yeah. Awesome. Um, all right. I guess we'll move on and I, I'll go to, um, to player centric now and I have a few for you. Um, I, you know who I'm going to ask about first, but because he's the biggest name and he's playing here in less than an hour in the fall stars game because of his performance in Arizona, I have to ask about JJ Bleday, um, very highly heralded as the first round pick third overall 2019 spent the whole year uh, with the Wahoos um, in terms of performance, the walks were there pretty much the whole year plate discipline was there, but the bat to ball was severely lagging behind. Um, and right now, as I just said, He's out in Arizona and he's killing it. He's played pretty regularly, 20 games, and he's been one of the top performers in the league, 325, 434, 602 with five homers, which is just about half of his 2021 full season total. Patience and selectiveness is still there, 19 to 16 KBB. Um, of course, it's happening. We have to kind of, you know, put it aside a little bit in, in a ridiculously hitter-friendly environment and hitter-friendly league for a team that's scoring just an absurd amount of runs per game, but all things, all things considered, it, it looks as though Blade after, after he, basically he told us, you know, he's tinkering with his swing all year. He may have found his full fledged comfort level. So recap the year for him as a whole, if you can, Chris. Um, yeah. And even though we have to keep this within reason here in Arizona, how are, how encouraged are you with that performance uh, here with the Mesa solar Sox? Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, if we're being candid for a second, going into the season, I'll ask you this question. What was the minimum threshold that you would have had for Blade to call his season a success? Like what, what would he have had to do for you to have been like absolute no doubt success season? 
Yeah, and I think a lot of people were far and away too high on this. I think everybody thought, you know, okay, it's J.J. Lede. They picked him third overall. He's going to hit 280, 290. I was never at that level, but I, I thought maybe a, a 260 performance, 250, 260 first showing in AA, that would have been a success to me, but fell way below that, I think. Yeah, I mean, not just that. People were probably expecting 25, 35 homers, you yeah. know, somehow. Oh, maybe right. he can you know, bang out 70, 80 RBIs in a full season right. of, of double A slash triple A if things go well. It's like, that's crazy. Those are crazy high numbers. And we can look into some of the advanced analytics. Again, I think at times, the initial thought is to say that his, his year was disappointing, you know, which is, I think, a pretty heavy handed word. Um, and I think if you look at sections of the season, there were disappointing moments, no doubt. He would probably be the first to admit that. The walk rate is good, but I wouldn't – I think at times it hampered him a little bit. I think sometimes he got caught in his head too much. If there was one thing – I don't know, just kind of being there in a peripheral sense. I think there was a guy who tried too hard, who cared too much, and sometimes was fogging up the mirror with his own breath a little bit. And I think that – Every two weeks, if something wasn't working to the way that he would like, it's time to go back in the lab and tinker. There are a lot of really promising things that are there offensively. He has a pretty good understanding of the strikes. And again, there were times he could have had a few more walks in key situations, right? But got rung up on some tough calls. There were times he was too timid. He was too patient. And I think he was overthinking situations. There were times I thought the team needed him to be the guy with the answer. Like, hey, we're down a run. There's two on. This probably isn't the situation for you to take two or three pitches, try to get yourself settled in. Like you need to be the hunter right now and be the difference maker. And the guy who did that a lot was Peyton Burdick, who I think stock went up a lot. And we'll probably talk about him a little bit later. How encouraged am I by his performance in Arizona? I think it really doesn't matter where a player is playing so long as it, like, it isn't beer league softball. To see him hit the ball the way that he is to the parts of the field that he's hitting it, because I've seen homers to deep left center. I've seen him hook missiles down the right field line. He's also drawing walks down in Arizona. He's deservedly a fall star. So all of that is really promising. And if it's true that he found you know basically the best version of his swing, well, then obviously I think we're all going to be licking our chops come spring training and the start of wherever he is next season to see whether or not that's true or whether or not it was a fallacy as a Marlins fan. And you're more of a Marlins fan than I am, but I would be slightly concerned, very slightly concerned that this isn't a, he's away from the facilities kind of doing things out in Arizona and seeing success. And, you know, does he come back and is, back with Marlins people and isn't feeling that and maybe feeling some animosity. I don't know. I mean, if we had the answer to figure out why a player doesn't do well and then does do well, we would be fielding world series champion teams to be the greatest scouts of all time. Right. But we can't do that. And no scout can do that. And that's why this science is so hard and so imperfect. I just know JJ. He's a really outstanding person. And I mean, of all the people I've gotten to know, I, I would really be happy to see him be successful and maybe get some of the naysayers off his back. Yeah, absolutely agree. Um, the one plus is that he is still around one Marlins hand out there with Phil Plantier, who is the hitting coach for um, Jacksonville. So he does still have a little Marlins connection out there with him. So you hope, as Chris said, that he doesn't come which back. Is, which is huge, right? Because if he was the pitching coach, all of a sudden you'd be like, okay, well, you know what? <laughs> you right. Know? Yeah, agreed. But yeah, no, he has. he still has, you know, some Marlins 
affiliated help out there in Arizona and doing what he's doing, which is a huge plus. And I definitely think that he could be in AAA next season. So yeah, um, great to see from JJ. I'm just hope it continues when he's back playing regular minor league baseball games. So we'll see what happens next season. I don't think any of us that are on this program, you know, me, Daniel, Chris, or, or anybody that else that we've talked to is out on JJ Blade and never has been. So yeah, it's, it's good to see him putting it together. Um, I thought he ended the year pretty well as well. So I, I think, I think he's going to be fine. So we'll go on. Um, and Chris mentioned our next one already with Peyton Burdick. Um, Chris Burdick, like JJ, um, started the year, I think a little slow, um, but unlike Blade, really, really figured it out, you know, a lot sooner than Blade did. I think late in July, he really figured it out, parlayed that into a fantastic month of August. I can give you the numbers, 351, 448, 622. Also played all three outfield positions, but spent most time in center field, which he just started to learn in spring training. So we know about the pure power potential. We know about the fact that he has pretty good selectiveness. The walk rate was like 17% with you guys this year. I think the 29% K rate is a bit understandable due to how physical this guy is with his bat, just because he puts so much behind his swing. I think that's always going to be a part of his game. But the fact that he dropped that down to 24% in August, the, that good, really good August, I thought that was really big. So uh, yeah, Chris makes it up to, to AAA at the end of the year for a, a little stretch there. Got, got a little taste there. So Burdick's year as a whole, um, what was that difference? Do you think that allowed him to get the bat on the ball more late in the year? And another question to follow it up. Do you think he could stick in center field? Um, I'll answer the second part first, because I, I don't think that he has the ability to play everyday center field at the major league level, but I think that he would be an outstanding left fielder. Um, I don't know if he has the arm strength necessarily to play right field. That's a pretty demanding corner outfield position. But when I look at, when I look at offensive type players first, I think to myself, okay, are they going to help? I mean, are they going to hurt me in the outfield, right? If they're going to hurt me, then it's like, okay, how much am I getting offensively to counteract that? And with Burdick, I don't think you have to worry about him in left field. I don't think he's a hindrance. I think he's going to play there and be fine. And I actually wanted to say very quickly about Blade, like one thing we didn't talk about is his defense. Not necessarily that he makes a bunch of plays that jump out at you, but he makes every play on almost every ball that's hit to him. And I think he could play almost every major league outfield position, even center field. And you wouldn't think to yourself, boy, we're getting killed with Blade in center, even if the bat doesn't come around. So that's another thing I like about him. But, but back to Burdick, the first part of your question, why do I think he dropped it down? I think Burdick's a really smart hitter. I've had the chance to talk to him the way he goes through at bats. And I know this might've been part of a different interview I think I had with Ethan um, and Eli, but he was going pitch by pitch of an at bat and really explaining it with, with what complemented his plan at the plate. It was specifically in a bat with Braden Webb. He wound up getting a grand slam, but he was like, I knew his changeup was his best pitch. He fell behind 0-2. This is early. I think it's in May, end of the month. And he's like, he threw me two changeups. They both missed low. And once he missed, or I think he threw two fastballs low and away. And once he missed with those, he's like, I know he's going to come back with changeup. And so I was sitting on it. And it takes a lot of conviction in a big moment of the game. I mean, it's literally the game's on the line. And he's like, this is what he has to do. And so you have to be really smart and really confident to be able to put those types of things together. And I think in August, he was just figuring guys out. I think this, the, the strike zone discipline was a little bit better. I think one thing about him, as you just aptly pointed out, I mean, he swings like freaking Thor every single time he's up there. 
And I've heard scouts be like, he doesn't have to swing that hard. Like he's already strong enough. Dude's an absolute physical freak. Like if a, a two strike swing for him would be like Billy Hamilton's, you know, yank one out of here. Like he just has to tile it back a little bit, increase that contact rate a little bit more. And the average is going to go up. You talked about, I love when you were explaining, explaining part of me, his slash line in August, that 448 on base percentage, the batting average this year, he even said it to me, you know, in September that he was disappointed with it, but the on base really stood out and he got off to a horrible start. So what does the on base look like with just an average start? What does the batting average look like if he gets off and plays like the verdict we saw for pretty much the rest of the year outside of three fourths of July and, you know, half of May, we're talking about arguably the top three best offensive player in the double a South. So he was a guy that didn't jump off the page like a Meyer or a Blade, in my opinion, as in terms of prospects, especially when I was learning the system. But to me, offensively, he is the most likely of the Blue Wahoos to make the major leagues the quickest just because of the things we talked about. And then also his intangibles. He is an old school, you know, tough as sandpaper type of player, and he wants it badly. I think he's going to make it. I really do. Yeah, and his college coaches, I know them well. Alex Sogard, who's the head coach at Wright State University, and my buddy named Metzger, who I've talked to a bunch regarding him, J.D. Orr, and Schrand, the guy. Anytime the Marlins draft a player, I go to them. I'm like, who's this guy? They've been raving about Burdick since he got drafted, and I think you can see why. So, yeah, um, a lot of teams were asking about Burdick last season. The Marlins basically said no to trades because of him. Will that happen again this year? I, I guess that remains to be seen, but um, I guess that's probably a conversation for another day. But I expect his name to be brought up in trade conversation, especially after how he ended the year. Anyways, we'll go on. Um, I guess we can just round out our positional guys that I want to ask you about with the last member of your second half outfield with Griffin Conine. Um, starts with the snappers, comes up with the homer total at 23, and he gets another 12 with the Wahoos. Easily could have taken home that home run crowned in all of minor league baseball, if not for that last week of the season getting wiped out, which we talked about. But past that, this guy is just so polarizing because of his enormous strikeout rate. So literally, Chris, it's either home run or nothing. With you guys, he had 28 hits, 13 were home runs. That's 46% of his hit total being home runs. Meanwhile, his strikeout rate is over 47%. So like I said, it's literally home run or nothing. Power, absolutely monstrous, 70-grade power, probably the best in the Marlins system overall, maybe next to Gerard Encarnacion, maybe. But he has to do something with that strikeout rate, man. And with so much outfield competition around him, I just fear that, you know, he's, you know, 24 years old now, just turned 24. I fear that attempting to do that within this organization, I think he had just has too much to work on, and it could be done in another organization. Past that, though, I, I just want to ask you, what, what do you think, that this guy has to do and can it be done for him to at least make the strikeout rate manageable? Because man, when he's putting the bat on the ball, it's, it's going out of the stadium. Yeah. I think, I think at times it was really painful because you just saw a player that when he first got double, it looked lost. I mean, I think he struck out in his first eight consecutive plate appearances, yes. you know, when he was promoted to Montgomery, it might've been nine, you know, and then what does he do? He breaks it with a home run to the opposite way. Beat it. Like, like you said, perfect, perfect, <laughs> perfect preview of what you saw. <laughs> so, I mean, right. My idea is 
They don't carry a lot of weight. I'm not a hitting coach. I would love to talk to hitting coaches, but what I feel like needs to be done or a place to start is trying to identify, you know, the, the swing rate at pitches outside the zone and, and start to work on strike zone identification because there were a lot of pitches, especially a lot of breaking balls that he either had a hard time recognizing or just could not resist for whatever reason. It was swinging at his stuff in the zone. Yeah. So 49, 47%, right? If you were able to really tighten that up, maybe you're dropping that down to like 43, 42%. If, if he's really focusing on swinging at strikes, fouling those off, and maybe the average goes a little bit up. I don't know if you're ever going to fix that type of player, to be honest with you. Uh, I think that is something that is just so rooted in his style. And then unfortunately, maybe not unfortunately, but it really mirrors the direction of the game and where it's been headed the last few years, which is it doesn't really matter if you strike out, if you're producing home runs, we need instant offense. And that is what Conine provides. I think at the end of the year, we saw what the beginning of his double-A tenure looked like. And I, I'm going to peg that on just fatigue. It's a really long season. It's a grind. The body breaks down a little bit. So he's a strong kid, but he's, he still looks like he has room to grow and get bigger and mature. So I, I think that he would, you know, with a good off-season regimen and really take care of his body during the year would look better next year at the end of the season. But man, if he does not improve on understanding the zone. And some people think that that's something you either have or you don't. I, I personally don't believe that, but I mean, I hope that's not the case for him because if it is, this is what it's always going to look like. And it only gets harder right. the more that you move up. And I don't know how many teams can live with a sub 200 hitter who strikes out 50% of the time, even if he is hitting home runs at the rate that you just described, because it's, it's too many outs. It's just too many unproductive at bats. Uh, and it's just not going to work in the big leagues. Yeah. I think if he doesn't fix anything, like if this is who Griffin Conine is, and I hope not um, that he's bad off the bench and, you know, he's fourth outfielder, maybe DH that's about it. Um, if he can bring it down. And I know this is a, a lot considering where he was, if he can bring it down to 30%, that's a starter. If he can get it, you know, by near 40%, that's an improvement. So as I said, um, I just fear for his future with the Marlins organization because of what the Marlins have coming before him and behind him in terms of outfielders, but we'll see. Um, hopefully he comes back and can fix that. And just so unlike his father, one more thing on him, because his father was the 285 career hitter with like a 350 career on base percentage. So you kind of wonder where the apple fell further from the tree. Anyways, <laughs> go on. Uh, I'll go to pitchers. Uh, we could be brief on, on the first one. Um, we've already mentioned him a couple times, but have to mention him because he's one of the best pitchers in minor league baseball. Uh, Max Meyer, um, you know, coming out of the draft, people questioned Max's ability to stick as a starter because of his unprojectable size. I think he answered those questions pretty easily. Like I said, became one of the best pitchers in minor league baseball. He led double A in FIP with 3.32. He was fifth in double-A and K-rate at 27.2%, seven most total strikeouts in double-A baseball, and his walk rate was, was under 10%, which was in the top 25 in double-A baseball, and tied for 15th in innings pitched with 101. So goes up to double-A or triple-A, excuse me, at the end of the year, and what does he do? Just strikes out 10 guys, no big deal, in his first appearance. Uh, in a hitter's park. So let's talk about the ridiculous Max Meyer. Um, Chris, you were there for probably most of his outings. Um, we hear rumors of the Marlins wanting to clear a spot for a young starter by trading Eliezer Hernandez and possibly Pablo Lopez. 
And a lot of people think that that would spot would immediately belong to Sixto Sanchez. But I think that Meyer could be in that conversation. If the Marlins invite him to spring training and have a rotation spot open, I think he could potentially win it. So how good was this guy and how close is he to the bigs? How good is this guy? Um, he is, he is very good. He is very, very good. Um, I don't care about his size. I don't think that matters in today's game as much because of just the, the advanced knowledge we have on diet and pitching mechanics and biomechanics and things like that. Like we can get the most out of a five eleven body, you know, much better than we could 20, 30 years ago. So his size doesn't really matter unless he starts picking up injuries. Um, and, and so far we haven't, really seen any of that you know does he become a major league starter look people got to remember as well when you're looking at prospect rankings and things like that like baseball america something i rely on is my bible throughout the year okay when someone's a number one prospect what that means is not that this guy is the best player in the system or he is going to be a future all-star what it means he is the safest of the group to be a major league baseball player and max meyer is without a doubt the safest to be a major league baseball player why? Because right now, right now, he would be, in my opinion, a very serviceable right-handed reliever. And I say that because you got good fastball velocity that you could max out. And people have talked about this. And you have a really good slider. He could use a little bit more command because he gets a lot of swing and misses on sliders out of the zone. I think that's why he was able to rip through double A. But like, I'm not worried about that. The one thing that I was slightly concerned about was the lack of a third pitch that was somewhere in between fastball and slider in terms of quality, whether it's a changeup or a curveball or what have you. And Hey, that's what this off season is all about, right? He's got people that will, I'm sure coaches, there's agent. will talk to him about this because if he does develop that third pitch, that's the difference between him getting a hundred million dollar contract extension at some point and not. Um, and that's the difference between him being a staple in the bullpen and being a starter, by the way, I'd be kind of sad to see Eliezer because like chef's kiss watching that guy pitch, even in a rehab start, love his style. It's throwback. It's Maddoxy. I love it. But like talk for a different time. So it, it, it's, it's interesting to see what will happen because I guarantee you this. If he doesn't learn that third pitch. Okay. And he does get a chance to start. It's not going to be pretty. It's not, it's a different beast being in the big leagues. And it's awesome that he was able to absolutely mow down the jumbo or when he was pitching for the jumbo shrimp. Um, and I was, I was listening to that game as well, but that is going to be the byproduct as well of a team that hasn't seen him before. Hasn't seen that slider. It's a big league slider. So no kidding that those guys struggle, but he's got to get that third pitch. It's my only concern. Otherwise, He's fine and he's really good. And it's why you should be excited about the pitching that the Marlins have, because they're like 12 deep, dude, you know it, I know it. And that's why they could be just a couple moves away from being really, really competitive again. Yeah. I want to see Max around, um, around Mel Stottlemyre, Sandy Alcantara and see what they could do for his changeup. Because as Chris said, if they can develop his changeup, he does have one. He doesn't throw it a ton. I don't think I would have to look at the percentages, um, and it definitely needs to improve. So get him around around Sandy, get him around Mel this spring, see what he could do for his changeup. I think he probably will start in AAA, as Kim Ang has said. Uh, that's where she sees him starting. So we have to go by that. But I, I see big leagues next season. I'm probably not to start the year, but I, I, I see big leagues next season. No doubt. No yeah. doubt. I think that's what the Marlins need. I think that's what Max needs to be. And honestly, I'm really impressed because he was one of the youngest guys that got there. He probably had one of the largest signing bonuses. I, that's a lot 
to come into your professional season in double light older guys they know who you are you might not know a ton about them per se and to own that i mean that that is what a big leaguer does okay so he's a competitive guy as well i I like the idea of him just being around some of the other pitchers that you mentioned wanting to prove that he's better than them and and that's what you want you want that little inner competition and you want guys to try and reach that potential so i'm very curious to see it um and because he's just so talented and it's a real shame when that talent doesn't equate to success at the highest level, but we see it all the time. Yeah. And there's definitely traffic. Um, you talk about baseball America, you see their 2025, which is ridiculous to think about um, projected roster and they have yeah. max in the rotation and they don't have Edward Cabrera in the rotation. So there's decisions, especially considering who sticks around and who doesn't, there's going to be decisions. Jesus Lazardo is another one. There's going to be decisions between who sticks as a starter and who doesn't, but I don't think Max Meyer will have trouble sticking as a starting pitcher. So that's Max. We'll go on. Uh, last one, Chris, and then I'll do quick fire before we go. Um, just because this guy really intrigued me this year, you may not be expected to ask about this guy, but I want to ask about Kyle Nicholas. Um, like I said, really, really intriguing guy this year. Starts off in Beloit. Um, started off okay, and then no getting past it after that was not good. That's why I thought right after his worst start of the year, he was called up to Pensacola right along with McCambly as Eater and Meyer went to the Futures game. I figured it was like temporary assignment. You know, they're going to go to the Futures game. They're going to come back. And then Nicholas is going to go back to Beloit. But no, that didn't happen. Nicholas stuck out, stuck it out with the Wahoos for the rest of the year. And per the numbers, found something. I mean, 13 outings with Beloit versus eight with you guys. Right around 60 innings pitch with the Snappers and right around 40 with Pensacola. The ERA was three runs less, five to 2.52. And the whip down from 1.4 to 1.22. Um, I think there's a couple caveats. Babbitt with Pensacola was really low. I think like 230 or something, not looking at the number. And his walk rate did rise quite a little bit, but he was a lot better in terms of allowing homers, allowed just three with you guys versus 13 with Beloit. Um, So I think limiting hard contact helped him. And then stranding guys on base, 86% stranded on base uh, with with the Wahoo. So I think better out of the stretch for sure. So um, what did you see from, from this guy? I know it was not that long of a time with you guys, Chris, but um, this is a guy that has really good heat and one really good secondary with the slider. Um, I think, like you just said with Max, maybe even definitely more so for this guy, um, lack of a third pitch would limit him. Also, I think his velo maybe dips a little bit later in the innings that he goes. But um, what do you think of him, first look, and can he stick as a starter or is this more bullpen? I think he can stick as a starter. Um, I know you don't want to rely on it all the time, but – the scouts that we had, the scouts I got to know, I mean, one of the first people they really sort of perked their ears at was Kyle Nicholas. And it starts with the frame, right? Good. <laughs> Not that it matters, right? We just talked about Max Meyer being <laughs> right. smaller, but it, it doesn't hurt you when you have a, a legit, you know, six, two, six, three, big, strong kid, good fastball velocity, good, easy mechanics, repeatable delivery, that sort of thing. He's got, he's got command of three pitches. He has command of three legitimate pitches. Now, his slider is not as good as Max Meyer's slider. His fastball is right around with Max Meyer's, right? But he's got other, you know, tertiary stuff that he can go to. And if that gets better, even if it gets better slowly, it puts him in a really, really good position to compete either for a a spot in the Marlins starting rotation or, I mean, he makes such a great trade piece when you think about it, if he's able to put that together. And, And that's 
one advantage I think the Marlins have with having so many pitchers, not necessarily the bats that we were hoping for. And that'll be obviously a huge emphasis during the offseason. How do we get more offense for this major league team? But with Nicholas, I'm, I was like you sort of scratching my head. I, I, I looked at the game logs. I looked at the breakdown of his numbers in Beloit. And I was like, why is he here? Like he's doing horribly. And I thought like you, oh, he's going to go back down once, you know, Meyer and Eater come back. But he performed and he did what I say all the time. And it, it, I love it, which is you cannot be a guy who is hungry for opportunity. And then when they get it, say, well, I got to get my feet wet. Like I need three or four starts and then I'll figure it out. You need to be able to produce immediately. You need to be able to succeed immediately if you want to be someone that is leaned upon more heavily. And in his first start with us, it was home start. I think he put together, took a perfect game, I think, into the fifth inning. And then his, his outing ended. He took a line drive off his back. The ball ricocheted to Demetrius Sims that. who caught it. And it was yeah. like, okay, <laughs> make sure make sure he's okay. Right. But and it was a tough loss for us. But I couldn't believe how well he pitched. And we saw very similar outings like that. Now, again, the walk rate was a little bit higher than it was in Beloit. He did have a few outings where we saw really poor locations, especially with a fastball, just get absolutely demolished, right? But that is part of the learning process when you're facing, because it's a huge increase in the caliber of hitting between what he was seeing in Beloit and, and what he was seeing in AA Pensacola. So it's real with Nicholas, I think. It's legit. and. It is a really important 2022 season for him because any step forward will be one that forces the Marlins to, I think, answer some serious questions about what we do with Kyle Nicholas. Do we make a spot for him or do we use this as a, as a player to get us a legitimate piece back? Because I think he is worth that given he be given time to show that this wasn't a half season fluke in double A. Yeah. And we know that this name as well as McCambly, um, other guys from the 2020 draft are, are guys that are being brought up in trade talks. And I, I, I foresee at least one, possibly multiple of those guys leaving, um, hopefully not Max Meyer, but Nicholas and McCambly, um, I definitely think could be guys that, that are gone, but we're talking about development for development, not, not right now, just for the Marlins. And I think agree with Chris that, that he could stick as a starter, just continue to develop, develop that third pitch. I think Slider's good. I think the fastball is good. I think he needs to do a little bit stamina-wise, as I said, and keeping his velocity into the later innings. But other than that, you know, I think he showed really well. When he wasn't pitching well, he goes and gets this huge jump, as Chris mentioned, and does pretty well. So um, most of the, his time in Pensacola. So encouraging and uh, probably boosted his trade stock on that front. But, um, yeah, I think he could definitely be good um, for whoever winds up with him in 2022. So that's all I got, Chris. But um, as you know, I have quick fire before we go. Um, this is a handful of just quick, short, short question and answer format. And then we'll, we'll get out. Uh, we'll get out of here on this episode. But uh, yeah, I'll get going here. My first one for you. Um, we know you called a lot, but if you can narrow it down to one favorite moment that you called this season. Uh, the come from behind win against Biloxi. Griffin Conine, first pitch, home run off Braden Webb. Brian Navarretto, next pitch, hits a double off the wall. Demetrius Sims with the weirdest sounding off the bat base in a right field to win the game. That was a lot of fun. 
All right. Awesome. There's a lot of moments, but yeah, I remember that one. I specifically liked Griffin going yard after the Blue Angels. That was probably that was pretty sick too. Moment. But yeah, he felt he felt <laughs> the pitch off right when it happened. Like, right? oh, like, but then the next one he got out. So I mean, it, like, it still counts. But like, ah, oh, I was been, watching you know? it. I was watching it. And I was like, what the, it was that? I thought it was like outside my house or something. Cause I had the volume up and I was like, Oh my God, the blue angels are actually flying. And being from San Diego, I saw them at air shows. I was like, that's amazing. And yeah. Jeff, if you look at dad's Twitter profile picture or used to be, at least it's him flying, I think with the blue angels. So Correct. he's a Correct. huge plane guy. And I think Griffin said that as well. So probably a cool moment for his family, but anyways, going on uh, number two. Um, and I probably know you're probably going to pick the same guy that we just talked about, but Ton of power on the team this year. Um, what was the hardest hit ball that you saw this year? Like just a ball that you saw and you're like, oh my God, I haven't seen a ball hit that that hard or that far. Probably Peyton Burdick. Uh, actually, you know what? I'm sure it's Peyton Burdick and, and there's a bunch, but J.D. Osborne hit a home run in <laughs> Montgomery that I swear sounded like a nuke being ripped. I mean, that thing was an absolute laser beam out to left center. And I was like stunned how far away because he cleared the video board, which is pretty far away. And our trainer, Jason Roberts, said like he had him before. It was like every now and then, like he's just going to get into one. And holy, did he get into one. So that ball, that one really stuck out to me. Yeah, that's not the answer I expected. But um, 2020, 2021 Olympia, 2020 Olympian, I should say, uh, J.D. Yeah. Otto, Team Canada. Anyways, uh, next one. Uh, kind of in line with that. And I, I probably, well, I thought I knew what you were going to say for the last one. I think I know again, what you're going to say here, but you may prove me wrong again. Um, most dominant pitching performance, uh, from a Wallace player that you saw here. Uh, probably eater, but you know what? I mean, there's different moments, right. That jump out to you. I mean, I think at one point, Jeffrey Yon <laughs> struck out four in a row. Uh, um, oh gosh, why am I blanking on his name right now? Had the immaculate inning for us. He was acquired in the deal with the Blue Jays. Um, yeah. Oh, man. Oh, man. I, I, I'm so embarrassed it's, that I'm not It's a lesser down prospect, but yeah. Um, McInville? Andrew, Andrew McInville. Yeah, Andrew, Andrew McInville. <laughs> like, he had an immaculate inning where he his stuff looked so untouchable. Like, it was gross. But I think Jake Eater in his first or second start had, like, 12 strikeouts. I think it was his first start. Had a no-hitter going into the fifth inning, had like 12 strikeouts. He had so many pitching performances like that. If, if you were to ask me who my favorite pitcher was during the year, hands down, by far, it was Jake Eater. Loved watching him pitch, loved his potential, really bummed about his injury. I'm not, I'm holding on to my Eater stock. If you're selling, I'll buy it. I, I'm not walking away from that at all. But uh, yeah, I mean, again, different snapshots, different moments, but most consistently Eater was was really, really good. Yeah. Agreed. Um, don't be out on eater. I mean, he's getting TJ out of the way early. I talk about this all the time when I was growing up, that was like, you're having Tommy John, your career's over. Now it's like, if you're a good pitcher, you have Tommy John surgery. And the fact that he's getting out of the way early in his career, I think is, is not, I mean, it sucks to see him get hurt of course, but the fact that he's getting out of the way early is good. So um, I'm thinking he's probably going to miss all of next year, but 2023, he's going to be, I think he's going to be just as good. Um, so you have to see, but. I'll take I'll take Tommy John over shoulder injury. We saw oh, yeah. Brendan McKay on a rehab assignment. He had shoulder problems, and it was really it was really sad to watch because he did not have it. He didn't look like the same player at all. Um, I hope that's not the case. I hope Brendan McKay comes back and is just as exciting as a two way player as he was. But it, the myth for me still holds true that if you have a shoulder a serious shoulder injury, that is a really real red flag. So uh, I'll take Tommy John any day of the week. Yeah. And just to mention it, that's, I think 
the thing with Pablo, you know, Pablo Lopez, that's multiple, multiple times now with the same shoulder injury. So concerning, um, but uh, we'll see what happens there. That's major league front, different story for a different day, but um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely agree. Tommy John over his shoulder for sure. All right. I got two more. Um, I'm going to throw back to promotions, Chris. Um, you know, so many this year, we've talked about the nightly road race, which was one of my favorite things that you guys did. Watson, you know, the dog, you know, we talked about the uniforms before everything. So I want to know at Blue Wahoo Stadium, the favorite, your like main thing that you looked at for over the course of the year that happened at a game or in the stands at a game this year. And you were like, that's awesome. And really stood out as like a, like a primetime moment for you. Well, one thing I thought was a really good idea that I thought other teams, even at the big league level could do was we had a movie poster giveaway and we basically took a photo actually hang on one second i have it right here oh i mean i got it framed we have this awesome poster it's got meyer burdick and meyer on it and we basically made it look like galaxy baseball and things like that and i thought that that was something that teams could do as part of like a collector series throughout the season so like maybe a, if you got rights for example you go as far as like a jurassic park theme where you know, you got certain players or different famous movies and things like that. I just thought that was a really great idea and something I want to see moving forward. And then we had a Hawaiian shirt giveaway that I thought was, you know, hey, it, it's cool, but whatever, you know, it's a, it's a shirt. Like how many times have you seen shirts give away? My God, was I wrong? I mean, we were out of them within five minutes of opening the gates we always give promotions to our players. They're in there. And, and some guys, I mean, they don't want it. Give it away, throw it away, whatever. Every guy wanted theirs. Every guy at some point was wearing that shirt on the road. Like this was, and then I didn't, we never had a game for the rest of the year. We're talking like 40 home games. And there were at least 200 of these Hawaiian shirts in the state. It was <laughs> unbelievable how popular these were. So those two things really stood out to me as like, okay, we've tapped into something here. We got to run it back next year and see how we can make it even better. Gotcha. Yeah. Those, those Hawaiian shirts were cool and watching on MLB TV, like you always saw the shirt in the stands. So <laughs> yeah. So really cool. I mean, I, I got one, I had to give it away to someone cause they were like, Oh, I didn't get it. And I was like, okay, well you should get it more than I should. Cause I probably won't wear it as much. And like, sure enough, man, people, people love that shirt. I saw at the supermarket the other day. So it's like, it's unbelievable, <laughs> but Nice. Awesome. All right. I got one more and I'm asking everyone this question in this series of episodes. You may have heard it before when I had previous guests um, and we know trades are coming. We talked about it during the episode, but scale of one to 10 with what is here in the Marlins system right now, November 13th, 2021 overall confidence in the talent level and the direction of the Miami Marlins franchise as a whole for you. I mean, it's a big question. So <laughs> you're probably with my years of GM experience. Let me tap into this one. Um, I don't know. And I don't know for the reason that it's, it's, and I hate to say this, but like, it, it's the Marlins. If you were to ask me the same question about the pirates, I'd say it's the pirates. If you say the same thing about the Mariners, about the Mariners. Typically we look at success over a sustained period of time. And that gives us an indication of whether or not things are going in the right direction or not. You have talented players. You have great young men. We've seen them in double A. And when they put it together, right, the sky is the limit. Look at all the pitchers that you have talked about on different podcasts and things. I mean, imagine if every single one of them was the best version of themselves. 
you would have five guys where Trevor Rogers would all of a sudden be like your number four, right? Because like, there'd just be other guys that have better raw stuff. We're talking about a guy who very narrowly missed out on winning rookie of the year. So I don't know. The pieces are there. The players are there. Can you develop potential into production? I think that has been the biggest challenge for the Marlins, you know, since the days of Stanton and Yelich and Ozuna. And obviously, Real Muto was like a great, great player. And, you know, trading him for Sixto yielded what is hopefully going to be another great player and another outstanding starting pitcher. I know his, his season was lost this year, so this will be a big year for him. But if it starts to happen, I will say that it is long overdue for a fan base that has deserved a little bit more consistent success than what they've had since the turn of the new millennia. And if it doesn't, right, if we look at next season, 2022, and it's very similar to 2021, then maybe it'll be the same conversation of, well, it's the Marlins and like, this is what they do. So I hope that's not the case. I know it's not the answer where I'm just supposed to be like, and we're selling everything Marlins, but like, I'd rather be real and honest with you. I'm like, honestly, I hope that Miami, Pittsburgh, and Seattle all make the playoffs. I was rooting for Seattle hard because, like, you deserve it after that long. <clears throat> no team should have to suffer, you know, for 20 years before they go back to the postseason. Um, so, we'll, unfortunately, the answer is we'll see. But it's better to have players like, you know, the young talent that you have. I mean, Laywood Diaz could be a great player. Jesus Sanchez did some really promising things. In right field. We just talked about the pitcher. Edward Cabrera, I know, didn't leave the imprint that we thought he might when he got up there, but like the stuff is still there, right? And so I'm excited just as much as you are. I just hope that we don't get to June and we're like, oh, we're 12 games under. Right. You know, so fingers crossed. Yeah. And as Chris said, neither one of us are general managers. There's people in these positions that are there for a reason. Um, You know, we can look at move over move over move that happened in 2021 especially on the major league level guys that the marlins like starling Marte are now talking about bringing back after trading him um the adam duvall trade i'm sure we can all agree was a big mistake um, especially with the arbitration year that he had even if he declined his option which he did because he will make more money in arbitration which is the smart move for him but past that and yes 2021 for everybody listening that wants to hear me talk about 2021 trades that I'm sure will get mentioned in Twitter comments about everything that we just talked about, that the Marlins are going to make the same mistakes. I don't think they will make the same mistakes with prospects because of the overall message that has been here since Jeter has been in the chair that he's in, that they want to stay true to the development of these prospects. And I think that's why many of them are still here that have been here since the start of the Jeter era, even guys from the old regime that they like are still here. And I think that that's what that's the reason to buy into the Marlins is because of what's here and everything that we just talked about that was in Pensacola this year, everything that we've talked about on previous episodes, that's your reason to buy into the Marlins. Do they have to build around it with major league talent? Yes. Can they do that in free agency? Yes. Can they do that in trades? They may have to deal a little bit from this depth that we just talked about, but yes, they can do it. And I think that this is a good team within the next two to three seasons. So that's all I have to say on the subject. (laughs) Yeah. Listen, I go to sleep every night and I wake up, or I go to sleep hoping that I wake up and see the news that somehow the Marlins have signed Carlos Correa. Uh, right. I, I, he's going to yeah. cost two brink trucks and then some, but mm-hmm. 
<laughs> to me, if that was the only move the Marlins made, I would consider that a huge, huge win for them. Um, because I think that one thing the team desperately needs is at least, especially offensively, a focal point leader that you can sort of point to with experience and talent and all of that. And there's no lack of talent on, you know, the other side of the ball, whether you're looking at Chisholm, whether you're looking at Brian Anderson, who's been there for a few years now, but Correa to me is someone who could keep guys in line, obviously a phenomenal bilingual presence as well. Um, and, and just get guys to, to really buy into what they're capable of doing, but it's going to be really hard to do that. Obviously when he is one of, if not the crown jewel of this free agency period. Yeah. And there's a splash somewhere, you know, either in free agency or trades Castellanos. That's another name that everybody's looking at for center field, you know, or outfield at least. So, you know, Stallings in a trade, you know, cause they need a catcher. So there is a splash somewhere, especially if they think this competitive window is opening, where is it? That's what we got to watch. And hopefully we find out before December 1st, but I'm thinking it's probably going to happen after. So we'll see what happens there. We'll find out in February. We'll find yeah, out in February. That's another show. We'll wait, wait till next time on that one. But that, that's it for this one. Our recap show on the Pensacola Blue Wahoos with our friend, Chris Gradiola. Chris, man, thanks again for coming on. Appreciate all your time, both this time and last time. Really appreciate it. Uh, great insight. So we definitely appreciate it. Listen to Chris in the Pensacola area on the radio, listen to him at MILB TV, follow him on Twitter. Great dude. And a great friend of the show. So Chris, thanks again, man. Appreciate it. Alex. Thanks, man. Appreciate all the hard work you do. Thanks a lot, dude. All right, guys, that'll do it. Episode 32 swimming upstream with Chris Gradiola. We hope you guys enjoyed it. We'll see you guys next time for the triple A version of this show. And then the one you're all waiting for, maybe I'm not so much looking forward to the major league <laughs> review of the Miami Marlins. So that's what's coming up next. Let's swim upstream. Be here for that one. We'll see you guys next time. Let's wake up stream. <laughs>